you know, it's, it's odd that we do um, a story for all ages, even when there's no kids. I know it says all ages, but you know, usually you ask the kids to come up and they sit down and they you know, listen to the story and they look at the pictures. But we don't have any kids lately, and we still do it. The reason we do it, I think, is because there isn't any better way to get a point across than through storytelling. Stories work, and it doesn't always have to be a story in a book or you know, a more classic kind of story. There's lots of ways to tell stories. But stories are probably, this is controversial because some people think poetry is older than story, but I would argue that stories are the original way that people passed on information and the original way that people made sense out of well, what's maybe a, a less than sensible reality. So I want to talk today about the power of storytelling, but more practically, the stories that you and I tell. So there are a couple of general types of stories. Let me just run through them. There are the metaphysical stories that people have told uh, you know, for, for millennia. These are stories about the nature of reality. So they're the big grand stories, cosmic stories. Then there's something called the grand narrative. That's a story you tell that makes meaning. The first, the meta story, tells sort of how things are. And then the, the grand narrative tells you why things are. It gives meaning to the world you live in. And we're going to get narrower and narrower. So then there's the tribal stories. So you identify with a specific group. And then there's the stories that the group tells about itself to define itself. Romulus and Remus, Adam and Eve, you know, those, those kinds of stories. Smaller still is your family story, the stories you grew up with, not the ones that your parents told you that were meta stories or that they, they taught you or, or told you, um, you know, from the Bible or things like that. But I mean, stories that your parents told you about, maybe about them or maybe about your grandparents, but the message wasn't usually informational. It was more either warnings or it sort of set a philosophy of how you should live. And I'll give you some examples of this in a sec. Just, I'll use my own stories. So there's the family stories. And then finally, in my little schema here, there are the personal stories, the stories you tell yourself that define yourself. So let me give you some examples, and then I want, during talkback, to see if you could share not so much the bigger stories, but the more personal story that you tell, either the stories you heard from your parents that sort of shape the way you look at the world, or the stories you tell yourself from your own personal history that shape your personality. Now, again, this will become clear, I hope, as I run through my own examples. So everything now is just about me. <laughs> so a topic about which I never tire of speaking. So my meta story about the nature of the universe is called panpsychism. Panpsychism says that everything is conscious. Not just you and I, not just animals, but this is conscious, the little, I hate to use the word striker. Thich Nhat Hanh doesn't like to say, you know, strike the bell. But whatever the, this object you want to call it is, 
it's conscious. The bell itself is conscious. Not the same way you and I are conscious, but not all that different. The, the difference may be that the bell isn't self-conscious, I'm, I'm assuming. So it's not sitting here going, no, no, don't do it, ah, don't hit me, right? It's not doing that. It might be, but I don't think it is. I think everything is conscious to one degree or another. So I never ask the question, how does consciousness emerge from inert matter? I challenge the premise that there's such a thing as inert matter. I think consciousness is foundational and that the universe evolves in such a way as to produce material bodies with greater and greater, because I think there's a direction to evolution, which is just a story, but there's greater and greater, the universe is producing uh, physical bodies with greater and greater capacity for consciousness. Whales, for example, are highly conscious beings, maybe more than you and I are. But since they don't write books and <laughs> they, don't, they don't dominate the planet, we get to say who's the most conscious, and we say it's us. But we don't really know that. So my, my meta story is panpsychism. Everything is conscious. My grand narrative is called perennial wisdom. I think the universe is constructed in such a way that it reveals to us uh, the interconnectedness of everything, that you and I and everything else are all part of this singular process. Because it's, it's dynamic in my mind, so I don't want to say a thing, but the singular dynamic process. And that this process also has a direction, and the process's direction, sort of like Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, The Arc of, of Justice, the, the direction of this process is toward um, compassion, because my, my story says that in the meta-narrative, it's moving toward consciousness, higher and higher levels of consciousness. My grand narrative says the more consciousness, the more compassion. Now, I can't prove any of that. I'm just, that's my story. My tribal story is more problematic for me personally. Those other two stories I have no problem with. They make sense to me. I, I don't question them. On, on an ongoing basis anyway. My tribal story is more problematic. My tribal story is I'm a Jew, so my tribe are the Jews. And the classic tribal story that I grew up with was there is a self-conscious creator God out there somewhere beyond the whole panpsychic thing that I'm talking about. And that God looked at the earth and said, oh, I like the Jews. <laughs> and chose the Jews from among all the other peoples on the earth. Now, that's our story, and many Jews are sticking to it. I'm not one of them, but that's our story. Now, within Judi the Jewish tribe, there are a lot of people who have scoffed at that for, for millennia. So there's a sub-variant of the story that God is, is going to choose those who will accept the rule of God, right? The, the Ten Commandments and those kinds of things. And in that story, God goes to all these other people who say, no, we're not interested. And finally, God realizes nobody wants to do this. So the last people left that he hasn't talked to yet are the Jews. And rather than say, would you like to accept this, they're gathered at Mount Sinai. And according to this story, God lifts Mount Sinai up over them and says, you can either accept the tablets or have the mountain. <laughs> no, no, let it go. And you're all dead. And they go, oh, no, no, we'll take the tablets. 
right? So there are people challenging that tribal story, but still, that tribal story is embedded in what it is to be raised in the storyline of in the narrative of, of Judaism. So God chose the Jews. What were the Jews chosen for? They were chosen to receive the one and only revelation from God, which is the Torah, New Testament, interesting book, irrelevant. Bhagavad Gita, nice story, but irrelevant. And all these other things. You can go through all the sacred texts of the world, but if you're in the Jewish story, you go, well, those are interesting human creations, but there's only one revelation from God, and hey, we got it. And then the third thing we got when we were chosen was the deed to the promised land in perpetuity. Regardless of who was living there then, and the Bible makes it clear there were seven nations living there and we wiped them all out, or who was living there in you know, the early part of the 20th century and had been for you know, centuries and centuries and centuries. And we said, well, yeah, you're living there, but hey, look, we have the deed. So we're coming home. So those three elements of the Jewish tribal story. Now, if you live by them, whether consciously or unconsciously, they can really, oh wait, I gotta find a nicer word than that, screw with your mind, <laughs> right? Because you think you're entitled. And if you go to Israel or you read the newspaper and you see the way many Israelis, not necessarily most, but the Israeli government is dominated by this story, uh, you can see how the story warps not just your thinking, but the way you act. So that's my tribal story. Now, I've rejected that story. I find other stories within the Jewish tradition that, that are more amenable to my panpsychism and my you know, perennial wisdom, and I'll go with those. But the main story is the one I just explained. My family story, even you know, bring it down more, even that more narrowly, my family story is based on, I think, two things. Now, if you ask my sister, she might have some other things. But this is what I got when I thought about what's my family story. So my fundamental family story is you start with nothing and you can build uh, a successful life from that. My, my grandparents came over to this country in the early part of the 20th century before. Uh, they were running away from Cossacks, not Nazis. And so they came here and they never learned English. And my grandfather, this is all on my father's side, my grandfather uh, traded horses and he was an itinerant rabbi but probably never ordained. And then my dad was first generation American and he started a business with his brother-in-law. And they built this business from, it was a janitorial supply business, selling wax and machines to polish floors and all that. They started out of a garage and they built it into a very solid company. And then my cousin, who's older than I am, he inherited it and he built it into a, a very large company. So the message was in the story was you can start with nothing, but here in America anyway, you can start with nothing and you can build a really great life out of that. We also learned that men drive, women are sitting in the passenger seat. We learned that men answer the phone, women wait until they're told who's on the phone. I mean, you got these, these nice 1950s uh, tropes from, uh, you know, father knows best kind of thing. But mostly we learned that you can go from nothing to a solid life. And that's really what you're supposed to do with your life. 
build a business or carry on the business that our, our parents built. The other part, the other story that I got from my parents is watch out. As great as America is, there's an anti-Semite behind every tree. And you can never feel completely comfortable. Always have an escape plan in mind. Now they were not, I don't know how conscious my parents were of, the, of that story, but that's the story they passed on in numerous different ways. They never said to us, okay, here's where our passports are, and here's how we get to Montreal. I mean, they didn't have it worked out that way. But it was constantly, you know, my, my dad used to say, scratch a Gentile and you'll find an anti-Semite. So you hear that from your parents and you just sort of absorb it and it becomes part of your story. Now, it's not a story that I accept. In, in the first part, the build the business, it wasn't a story that I even was interested in. But those are the stories I inherited. And if I look at my behavior, those stories do influence how I, I think and how I feel and maybe how I act. Then there's the very personal stories that come out of my own history. And I'm going to tell two that when I was preparing this and trying to think this through, trying to think of what are the two stories that really shape me mentally, maybe spiritually, I'm not, I'm not sure, because now it's, it's easy to talk about my, my, my parents or my father's stories. It's more difficult to get a clear handle on my own. So I'm going to tell two. Maybe you've heard, I've told you these before, but these are two, I uh, can't think of what the word is, but these are two um, foundational stories for me. The first one I wrote about in a book called Holy Rascals. And in that story, I was, I mean, this is a true story. So I'm like 16 years old. After my bar mitzvah at 13, I started to have a real interest in religion, but not Judaism, any religion other than that one. And I, you know, I was reading all, all the time. And then I, in high school, I had classes on Hinduism and Buddhism. I was into all this stuff. I was also the only reader in my house. My dad read the newspaper. That was it. I never saw my mother even read the newspaper, though she probably read, because she reads a lot now, but she, so she probably read like novels of some sort or other, but nothing that they would teach at MTSU, just you know, paperbacks that she picked up. Um, and my sister read nothing. So I was in my, you walk into my room, I had bookshelves everywhere crammed with books, and they're all about religion and philosophy. I, didn't, I read some novels when I was younger, but as I got into my teens, it was all about religion and philosophy. And it sort of spooked my parents. They couldn't figure out why I would waste my time reading these things. So one night, because I, you know, I have to go to bed at a certain time, lights out, and I would turn my bedroom light out, and then I have a flashlight, and I'd be under the blanket, and I'm reading you know, some esoteric text. Other kids are reading Tarzan. I had done that earlier. But I'm reading you know, Plato or something. Probably not Plato, but whatever. I was reading Plato in the original Greek. In, no. <laughs> so I, I'm awake, I'm reading, and my mother comes into my room. And she sits down on the bed, and she says, I want to ask you a question. She's deadly serious. And she says, are you the Messiah? <laughs> now, in Judaism, the Messiah hasn't already come yet. The Messiah, I mean, we've had Messiahs in Judaism in the past. They all 
they all failed to do what they were supposed to do, including Jesus. So, but, so we're waiting for the Messiah. And my mother assumed, I guess, I have no idea, we never talked about this. I assume my mother thought the Messiah might be interested in reading. So, so I was the most well-read person she knew. And there's some cachet in being the mother of the Messiah. So she wanted to know if, I mean, she didn't put it this way, but can I tell you know, the girls in Mahjong that I'm the mother of the Messiah? So she wanted to know if I was the Messiah or not. And it, but she was serious. She was crying as she said it. And watching my mother cry made me cry. So I lied. And, and I said no. <laughs> but, but that story, that question, I, I don't know if the word is haunts me, but that question has been with me since she asked it. And it's always, I don't ask myself, are you, are you the Messiah, right? I don't, I don't do that. But I do wonder about what's my role, what's my bigger role in society, working with all these spiritual narratives and all this other stuff. Why can't I just retire and let it go? I mean, Jim gave up the rocks. <laughs> Why can't I give up the rock? Right, you know, so, um, so this story has shaped my whole life to, to one extent or another. The other story comes from, I must have been in my 30s, maybe even early 40s, because I, I'm very bad at my own timeline. But I was, and again, you may have heard this story too, but I was, I was giving a lecture in Amsterdam to a group called Children of Holocaust Survivors. And I never knew any Holocaust survivors. My parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, they all came before. Uh, so I never, as far as I know, I, I knew no family, far, I, I knew no family members who, who were murdered by Nazis. But I wrote something somewhere, and this group read it, and they were very intrigued and asked me to come and talk about whatever. I don't remember what any of it was. The only thing I remember is, um, having this great apartment a couple doors down from Anne Frank House uh, and, and spending most of my time just wandering around Amsterdam and being taken, because this is my only you know, requirement for going besides getting paid, uh, was I wanted to go see Spinoza's house because I'm a big Spinoza fan. But the, the story has nothing to do with any of that. The story is I'm sitting in the apartment in Amsterdam and I get a phone call what the apartment does, I mean, they don't know I'm there. But I get a phone call, and the phone call is from the woman who is handling my trip. And she says she got a phone call from some rabbi, she said from Israel, that's how I remember it anyway, who heard I was in Amsterdam and wants to come and see me. So, you know, am I open to that? So I, I said, sure, why not? So she told me a time, and I'm waiting in the apartment, I made tea, I don't I don't know what else I had to eat, you know, because I thought I'd have a guest for a while. And the, there's a knock, and the guy comes in, and he's uh, probably a, a Hasidic rabbi. You can't always tell. But he's got the long beard and the black coat and the hat and the side curls, so must be Hasidic. And, you know, I said, oh, you know, we, we, I welcomed him in. I offered to take his coat. You want to sit down, blah, blah, tea. Now, of course, it never occurred to me that he probably figured there's nothing kosher in this house, so he's not going to eat. But he never sat down. 
He never took off his coat. He says, no, no, I just have one question to ask you. I said, okay. I thought, oh, are you the Messiah? No, wasn't that. <laughs> this time I'll have a better answer. So he asked me, he says, what's the essence of Judaism? Now that's a classic question that goes back at least 2,000 years. So there's a story in the Talmud about a, a, a Roman soldier who goes to Rabbi, first to Rabbi Shammai and then to his partner, Rabbi Hillel, and he asks them, teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot, which is the same way of saying, what's the essence of Judaism? So when Hillel, uh, when Shammai's asked the question, he just gets mad and chases the guy away. When Hillel is asked the question, Hillel says, what is hateful to you, don't do to anyone else. That's the whole of the Torah. Now go, everything else is commentary. Now go study it. Jesus is asked a similar kind of question just a few decades later. And someone says to Jesus, uh, what, what's the most important commandment? It's just another way of asking the same thing. And Jesus says the most, the most important commandment is uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength. Uh, and then he says, but there's another commandment that's really close corollary. You should take them together. And the other commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. So that was his answer. So this is something that is asked of rabbis throughout Jewish history by other rabbis, except for the Roman guy. The Roman guy becomes a rabbi, but that's another story. So this guy comes in and he says, I just have one question. What's the essence of Judaism? Now, if I, know, if I had known he was going to come and pose that question, I would have thought about it. I would have read a book or something, you know, and I would have, okay, let me just map this out, let me memorize it so it sounds spontaneous, you know, whatever. But I had no idea that was the question. And for some reason, um, I just answered it without any hesitation or forethought or, you know, any, I wasn't, I, I was as, uh, the answer was as new to me as it was to him. So he says, what's the essence of Judaism? And I said, in Hebrew, I said, teshuvah v'tikun, because we were doing this in Hebrew. So teshuvah literally means to return. In his world, this rabbi's world, it means to become orthodox. But I'm using the original term. So teshuvah is someone who turns um, or returns to truth, not to orthodox Judaism. So teshuva, that, that Judaism is all about turning to truth. And tikkun means to heal, and it's usually done in, in uh, it's linked to the word ha'olam, so it's tikkun ha'olam, to heal the world. So it's social justice, social action. So I said that the, the essence of Judaism is teshuva, returning to your true nature, your true, which you know, for me is, is this expanding consciousness, you're all part of this one reality, returning to your true self with a capital S, and then healing the world from that perspective, from that awareness. He didn't say anything. He just, other than thank you, and he left. You know, he didn't argue, he didn't, what about X, what about Y, nothing. He just left. I never heard from him again. I don't know his name. I, other than he looked like a chassid to me, I, I don't know anything about him. I don't really know if he's from Israel or not. 
I don't even know if he was a Jew or not. Maybe he just bought a hat and a long coat and had a beard and walked in. I, I have no idea. I guess this unknown character walks into my life, asks me that question, I give him my response and disappears. So if I were orthodox, you know, if I were still in the mindset in which I grew up, I would have said it was Elijah the prophet. Because there's tons of stories about Elijah. I hadn't thought about this till just now, so maybe that's who he was. So, you know, where Elijah takes on different guises to guide you in certain ways. So maybe it was Elijah telling me, you know, cut the crap, what's it all about, Alfie? <laughs> and, and that's the answer I came up with. But that answer defined and defines my understanding of Judaism. Now, it wasn't a well-thought-out answer. It's not something I came up with uh, through deliberation. It just came to me. So I'm going to assume, as part of this story, that it's a revelatory answer. Right? I'm not saying there's a God out there who said, Teshuva and Tikkun. Right? I'm not saying that. But I am saying that it comes from a dimension of mind larger than my ego. So it comes from that dimension that we might call self with a capital S as opposed to my egoic dimension, which is self with a lowercase s. I'm, I'm assuming that's true. But whether that's true or not, the fact is this notion that Judaism is about return, returning to your true nature and healing the world from that perspective has defined everything I've done Jewishly since that time. So those are just two stories that absolutely shape who I am as a person. One, this nagging thing, are you the Messiah? I don't even know what the implications of that are, but you know, what is your cosmic spiritual role in the, in, the, in the world or something like that? I don't know. And then on a more concrete level, you know, because I still identify as a Jew, I still write Jewish books, a new one coming out in just a few weeks, look at him. Um, since that's still my world, that story has, still has tremendous relevance and resonance. So I'm going to end this in two seconds. What I want you to think about, if you're willing to share, because that's what we'll do in our sharing session, what, I mean, you can talk about any of these stories. Not, I don't mean talk about mine, but I mean talk about any of the meta ones or the grand narrative or the tribal, whatever, you can talk about whatever you want. But what I'm most interested in, do you have a personal story that shapes you, even if you never thought about it before, and even if you change your mind when you walk out and, and go home. What, that's what I want you to think about during the rest, of, you know, as we close out the service and then come back for, for sharing. Because I think if we understand those stories, we learn something very powerful about ourselves and why we are who we are in the world. So I'm going to stop, leave you with that, and I'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you.